Welcome to season four of Copy Room Conversations, releasing imperfection and normalizing joy. My intention in sharing these precious humans with you is to inspire you to let go, let down, and remember that joy is love without inhibition, and love without inhibition is joy. With joy, we will not only survive, we will remember what it is to thrive, and so will our kids. Big thanks to our sponsor, Dirt Path Publishing, a company dedicated to publishing works with social impact. They are also the publisher of my book, Nothing's Missing, released earlier this year. For more information about my book, visit nicoleluciani.com. And for more information on Dirt Path Publishing, visit dirtpathpublishing.com. In the meantime, and always, welcome to the copy room. Jenny Brown has 800 students, not in her lifetime, not in the last decade, right now, each and every week, because Jenny teaches elementary music, and she does so in Bluffdale, Utah. She is a passionate teacher and learner, always looking for the next amazing thing to learn. Moving from the grade-level classroom to the music classroom has allowed Jenny to embrace joy as a daily practice. Jenny uses building activities, movement, singing, instruments, dance, and music games to consistently help children experience the joy of their childhoods. Just listening to her talk about it will make you want to do the same, no matter what age and what content you teach. Thank you for being here. I'm so grateful to meet you. You came to me through our mutual friend, Mary who was on season two. And um, I was telling her, you know, I need some folks who are like really oriented to joy. And she's like, stop, I know exactly who you need to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's how we found each other. My byline was sing joyfully for many years. Oh my God, I just love it. And taking a look at your bio, I know we've got a lot to kind of unpack to get to know each other a little bit, but uh, you're a Brene Brown fan. So that already makes us like simpatico. And you grew up in New Mexico. That's interesting. I did, yeah. Um, it was interesting there because it was the seventies and it was, um, open classrooms, Mm -hmm. which everyone agrees were like a big failure. And I became a teacher and they still had the open aspect going in. So we just build our own walls Mm -hmm. with bookcases Mm -hmm. and whatever. But as a child, it really worked for me. I loved it. I had the same teacher for first through third grade and we just worked at our own pace and there were parent helpers there to help out. But I became such a self-directed learner. Like it has really impacted me today. It's inter- it's almost sounded almost like a little bit like Montessori. Yeah, yeah, and it's really what we're going for today with student-directed learning and collaboration. Mm-hmm. The teachers would work together, and mm-hmm. so there's a lot of good things that um, that were going on back in the '70s. Yeah, I went to school in the '70s too, and we also had those open classrooms. But the teachers still tried to teach like there were walls there, so it was like you know. I, it was so distracting for me as somebody who is kind of introverted and stimulus and super sensitive to stimulus. So like the first grade class over there and the third grade class over there and I am in the second grade like, oh my God, there's so much noise. Oh, I think my teacher just did it right and she was in a portable. Mm. So we didn't, I didn't feel the noise mm. thing. We just had our own little space. And so great. So it was, it was a really joyful way and I, um, I remember going to fourth grade, the traditional classroom, and just sitting and just Ugh. waiting and just sitting around, waiting for everyone to catch up. And I was just so bored. And then fifth grade, I had a kind of progressive teacher, and 
it was just one teacher, one mm -hmm. classroom, but um, he said that if you wrote up your own learning plan, you could go in this tiny room, which I now realize was just a closet, <laughs> and you could sit at this chair and like work your own learning plan for the day. And I loved it. Oh my God. And, and we could do it with a friend. Yeah. Yeah. So we just sit in there and get our work done super fast and then just talk. So. That's amazing. <laughs> I loved oh it. Oh my God. It was like mastery based grading before mastery based grading was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, I've been doing a lot of work in New Mexico. They had a big lawsuit. Um, I don't know if you've heard or not, but just a, an equity issue with kids of color not getting uh same access to a quality education and my work is focused on culturally responsive education and so when a school has to hire somebody by state law you know our office is one of the ones that gets picked up and I've just it's such a fascinating place the indigenous communities there and the Spanish communities and then the indigenous Spanish communities yes. like a combination it's just it's a, such a blend it is yeah. it is it was rich we have just culture cultural things that I miss so much there like the state fair mm -hmm. you know we'd have like Native American dancers doing mm -hmm. their hoop dances and the, the eagle dances and mm. um, and everybody speaking Spanish everywhere and just awesome food. Mm -hmm. and it was a great place. Mm -hmm. And the luminarias are my favorite thing that I did mm. on and, Christmas Eve. Yeah. What brought you to Utah? Well, I went to college my first year in New Mexico. Um, I was studying music therapy. Mm -hmm. And I went to like a regional workshop or conference or something, and I, and I realized there's no jobs in music therapy. Mm. And so that was why I was going to school um, at Eastern New Mexico, because they were the only place in New Mexico that had music therapy. And I had a, a boyfriend whose father was brilliant. He was a, a Rhodes Scholar, and he was like, you know, you really should go to BYU because it's mm. a much better education for the money. And so even though he wasn't Mormon, he, he told me I should go um, mm. because... Mm -hmm of the education. So that's what brought me to Utah. Okay. And then I met my husband and we just both got jobs here and started working. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. my family came from here. My parents were from here. So okay. it was always like coming home. My grandparents lived here. So oh, that's lovely. Yeah. yeah. And so you obviously did not become a music therapist, although I would argue a music teacher is a music therapist to a certain degree. It but... has been a beautiful coming full circle. And yeah. just, as an 18 year old, um, I, I grew up with a really musical family, so my mom was an opera singer, and my grandpa was the Tabernacle Choir soloist, so he mm. had this whole line of records, and we'd see him on TV all the time, and wow. so music was a big deal in our family. We would go to nursing homes and sing, and mm. you know, sing in church, and so I really wanted to use music in an altruistic way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to me, I found out about music therapy, and I was like, this is it. This is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great field. Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about it, but just not knowing where I was going to end up in my future, and there's mm -hmm. very few jobs. Mm -hmm. I had a choir director um, when I was at Eastern New Mexico, and he asked me if I would go work with his wife's students, and she was a special ed teacher. Okay. So I went in every week, and I was teaching these little kids a little song for the very special arts mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. And I just loved walking down the hall and being in the classroom and sitting at the table with the kids, and I was just like, this kind of feels like my jam. And yeah. So I changed majors over the summer and um, ended up going into elementary ed because at that time there was no elementary music in New Mexico or Utah. Like, Are as you a position. kidding? Oh my no. God. The classroom teachers just had to do it all. What? That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy to me. So um, I have a, a good friend who I, 
a similar thing where she wanted to be a music therapist and she found herself, she was a violinist, she found herself often playing the violin for Alzheimer's patients at the end stages of their life and really having the most extraordinary experiences doing mm-hmm. this work. But she, she couldn't find regular work which it's just like that's so crazy this is the most beautiful thing I can ever think of is to usher someone through the end stages Mm -hmm. of their life with something that was that beautiful it just breaks my heart that people aren't whatever whoever field that is is that hospitals is it hospice like let's do this it's so beautiful right well and not just like making people feel better but the actual scientific psychological things that are happening. I have an uncle who recently went into um, memory care. Okay. And so last summer I was visiting them and just doing some music therapy with them Mm -hmm. and just found, like, I love the old songs, like from the forties and Mm fifties. And so we all just bonded over, Mm whatever will be, will be. Mm -hmm. So these people who had no idea who the president is, Mm -hmm. they didn't know where they were. They knew every word of mm. these songs. Mm. And I would just, I would do little experiments. I'd like start to say a nursery rhyme and they would finish it. Mm. So like the cognitive recall through, through music yeah. is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And especially if you grew up in a family like yours where music is a really a part of the ethic almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think about that when I do my work, this culturally responsive work, it's, it's actually culture-based. And so we think about things like music and art and language and bringing what's in the home into the classroom so that the students recognize themselves as learners through this vehicle of instruction that feels like home, music being one of those oh, things. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then the kids feel seen. Yes. Yes. They feel seen. They feel valued. They say, oh, I'm a learner. This this is a school. This is my music for my family. I belong here, right? And now all of a sudden, they're open to all of these things that they weren't before because they always have to feel, not always, but so often kids feel like they have to edit themselves to fit at school. Mm-hmm. And so when we can introduce music that's music from their homes right? And this is what we're learning today. And they already know that. It's like they can stop editing and they can put take their mask off and just like be... Wow. And you just get instant buy-in. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, and then the music too, I'm sure, you know, I'm not, I'm just kind of babbling, but I'm, I get so excited about thinking about it like a mirror and a window, right? Music is, it offers us something that reflects us back to ourselves, but it also allows us to see parts of people that we wouldn't otherwise see that are different from us. It's an incredible means of communication. Um, When the kids are singing together, they're creating unity in the classroom. Yeah. And then it's a song they love, and then they go home and they sing it for their parents, Mm. and then that creates community in their homes. And then their grandma says, I learned that song when I was a little girl. And then there's another bond. So it it bonds through cultures. It bonds through time and location. Yeah. And and just like the energetic vibration of the music itself yeah Yeah, your work is so important like I can't you're and you're our first music teacher which is really great for our podcast I I've been excited to have somebody on that does your work so let me just start by saying thank you for all you do it's so so important thank you thanks for having me yes so we heard a little bit about kind of your young person growing up and this kind of progressive teacher that really lit your fire and then this open experience that allowed you to kind of drive your own curiosities then you hit fourth grade and it was like traditional school (laughs) 
And you knew in your heart this was not something that you resonated with, right? So as you think about your going through your education, I knew you said you wanted to be a music therapist, but was there ever a moment where you thought, maybe I'll be a teacher, like maybe I want to give to other kids what I had, or was that just not even on your radar? Oh, no, it totally was. My mom was a music teacher, okay, and she talked a lot about just her natural teaching abilities, and mm. I would play school after after school with my friends, and you know, we would just get all, we were thrilled when our teacher would give us her old um, worksheets. Mm. We had gold and we'd take them home and then we'd play school with them. And like, we're like doing more school for hours and hours. <laughs> but it was play. It yeah. was play. Yeah. And so it didn't feel like work. Right, right. I think back a lot about standing in front of my bookcase in my bedroom, exactly where I was standing. And just that vibe of just mm. sharing knowledge and being about learning. It, it, it felt very comfortable to me. Mm. From the very beginning. And then you yeah. had this kind of sojourn through music therapy and then you shifted gears into um, being a music teacher when you had this experience at the school. You said something about like being in the hallways with the children and sitting at the tables. And, and what is it about them that was drawing you or about the experience that was drawing you? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, you know, you're talking about the energy of something. I think it was the energy of the innocence mm. and, and yet the focus too. Mm-hmm. Like this is a place that is just focused on children. Mm. And um, I think my own childhood was not very innocent because I watched my father die when I was eight years old. Oh, God. And then my mom remarried and then got divorced and then remarried and got divorced. So we were moving around a lot and mm-hmm. I didn't have a whole lot of stability. My mom was fabulous, but mm-hmm. you know, obviously she wasn't emotionally available for me right. a lot of the time. Right, right, right. And so I've always thought that my going into education was sort of healing my inner child of just mm. creating a very safe and nurturing place for children where they could be seen and taken care of. And had a home, right? They yeah. were secure. Yeah. I think teachers like you and like me to a certain degree too, I went into teaching for a very similar reason to give, especially girls, but then I had sons and I was like, oh, boys need this just as much. Um, (laughs) uh, Things that I wasn't given, you know, you you were called to the work for whatever reason to heal part of ourselves. And didn't you find, or I guess we'll talk about this in a bit, but I always found like, oh, there's something else that needs to be healed. All right, let's get on with oh, it. You know, yeah. <laughs> because teaching yes. just provides us. I feel like teaching is such a spiritual profession in that way. It is. And it's a mirror, too. Every time I have yes. a problem with my sixth grade boys, I just think, okay, what is it in my sixth grade self that needs healing? You know, and I just, I go right so to smart. that because if we don't look at that, I think teachers are reacting to kids and situations and they don't realize what's coming up. Like, it's really your own stuff. It's not really that. Totally, totally. I remember I taught high school, so it was a little different, but I started teaching when I was 21. These kids were like 16. I had no business. Like, I don't know what someone (laughs) was thinking. I was terrible, too. I hadn't even finished my credential because I ran out of money, so I came in on a a long-term sub. Anyway, there's just a debacle of so many massive (laughs) proportions. But I had a real aversion to conflict. And so, of course, you know, I draw every kid who wants to fight. They want to fight each other. They want to fight me. They want to fight the system. They want, and I'm like, oh my God, can we just do a creative project? (laughs) Yeah, it just, it does that. What do you feel like um, was one of the harder lessons you had to learn as a teacher and, and maybe how being a teacher has strengthened other parts of your life? 
So I started teaching in upper grades, and my family's really intellectual. My dad went, he got his PhD, and then he got his MD, and so we were very learning and very intellectual. And I, so I became a teacher, but I was going to be like one of the smart, professional, mm. intelligent ones, you know? Mm-hmm, so I kind of mm-hmm. became a teacher with a little bit of something to prove. Yeah. I was an upper grade teacher. I was, you know, very professional and involved. And to a certain extent, my students were playing the role in my drama, you know? Mm. And I was a kind teacher. I was playing the role of a good teacher, but mm-hmm. still, I had an ego. Mm-hmm. And when I um, had a baby, I wanted to go half time. And the only way to do that in my current position was kindergarten. Mm. And I had done all my undergrad prep in upper grades, upper grades. So I mm-hmm. didn't have early childhood understanding or endorsement or anything. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go through classes and a whole new mindset. And really, it felt like a completely different job mm. teaching kindergarten Mm -hmm. and I felt it shifting my personality in really dramatic ways because Mm. you can't tell kindergartners like guys I'm just having a moment just leave me alone you know yes you can't say I need you to be good and just shame them into behavior you know they'll just cry yeah Mm -hmm. and so I really had to guard myself and watch what came out of my mouth because Mm -hmm. they're so sensitive they're so tender Mm -hmm. and so honest and so I really started to kind of dismantle that ego and just sit with them as little children and see their needs because they let you know <laughs> everything For that they sure. do. Yes. You yes, know, yes. you sit with them and just be excited about the things that they're excited about and understand like my job is not just to teach you the ABCs, but I need to be excited that you lost a tooth and you got mm-hmm. new shoes and your mom's having a baby. Mm-hmm. Let's give that some airtime. Mm-hmm. And so that really shifted me as a person and as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It was exhausting, but I spent 11 years in kindergarten Mm -hmm. because I could just feel like I'm in the trenches here. I'm doing really hard work, but it was also transforming me as a person. And I became just a lot more patient and gentle and kind and understanding. And then, then it transferred now that I'm teaching K through six. Yes. You know, these fourth graders will be acting like little kids. And I'm like, Oh, you are a little kid, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get yeah. it. Okay, yeah. you're excited that you got new shoes, even though you're ten. Yeah, oh, that's okay. It's not that amazing. It's like you learned that you were teaching humans and not content. You know, when you yes. when you go to kinder, I have a cousin who she's taught kinder forever, and she's so good with the kids and their little humanity. And it's such a reminder that why I taught the other end of the spectrum in 12th grade, that little humanity is still there. They're mm-hmm. just in a big body, you know, and they exactly. don't, they, they have different needs developmentally, but they have the same needs as human beings. And I think that's what those of us who teach big kids forget. And so what a gift that you're now able to translate. You had upper grades, then you had kinder, and now you can translate all the way across. Yeah. Now, now though, I have to remember that with my sixth grade students, you know, because they're so self-conscious. Yes. That sometimes they act in really dumb ways, and I yes. have to try to see through their mask mm-hmm. of cool or tough or embarrassed mm-hmm. or whatever and mm-hmm. realize there's a little five-year-old in there. Yes, (laughs) yes. They're just trying on different identities. I remember saying to my own sons when they were that age, sixth grade boys are hard. Fifth and sixth grade is so hard on our boys. I just watched them change from like bright, vulnerable, let's talk about my feelings, mom, into this this boy, right? Like that they're friends and they're friends' dads and just like, 
all of a sudden they weren't allowed to have feelings anymore. And so yeah. I used to say to them, okay, this identity is not working out for you. So let's try, let's try a different one because I'm not, I'm not really feeling this. But it's, it's hard when the messages from elsewhere don't match the messages from home. And you probably have that yeah. in your classroom as well. The messages from like their math teacher, I don't know your math teacher, I'm just making that up. And then they come into music class and the messages may be different. And so it's confusing, right? Plus, like you said, they're so self-conscious and putting on a show for everybody because they think that everybody's looking at them. God, that's a tough grade, especially for yeah. boys. So hard. Yeah, and especially in music, you know, because I'm yeah. asking them to do a lot of silly sounds with their voices or move their bodies. And yes. I feel like, you know, especially in like, the sports coaching they get just teaches them. And yes. I, I, my girls did sports. Like I really believe sports are good for kids, but mm-hmm. we have to do it in a way that allows them to still be a child and still yes. hold on to their vulnerability and their humanness. Yeah. Don't you think this is why I, I, I I'm working actually with a colleague on um, creating a program for teachers that's built around Brene Brown's braving inventory, because nice. I feel like, first of all, we need to learn how to be vulnerable and brave. And then we need to learn how to create spaces for our kids. So Brene has this curriculum already called Daring Classrooms or something like that. And it teaches the kids how to be brave. But I would contend that they're not going to be liberated until we're liberated as teachers, right? Absolutely. Yeah, music is so vulnerable. I hadn't thought about that before. I think learning is really, really vulnerable anyway. But music is like performance level vulnerability. Oh, my God. How do you help your kids kind of get over themselves in that do you use joy in, as, a, as, a, as a tool? Yes. Yes. That is the key. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can find a really funny camp song, mm-hmm. like there was a great big moose and they just echo me, yeah. then they kind of lose themselves in the words. Or I sing this song with my sixth graders called The Littlest Worm. Mm-hmm. It, you probably know the tune. The littlest worm I ever saw yeah, was yeah. stuck inside my yeah. soda straw. Yeah. So it goes through all these verses where the kid drinks the worm. It goes down inside him. And the boys are just like, oh, what? We can sing about this? Yes. Awesome. And yeah. they buy in and they beg to sing the song. And yeah. I had a boy go home and he researched. This is Brown. I found another verse. And then in this verse, the worm gets scuba gear. Do not fear, you know? Oh my <laughs> so, God, that's amazing. Yeah. So just something that helps them get outside themselves, like mm-hmm. joy or, mm-hmm. or game. It's a really mm. big one. They love playing games because then they can forget about themselves and just mm. connect. And that's, you know, Brene Brown says that the, the way to step out of shame, out of perfectionism is connection. Mm-hmm. So when we're singing together, when we're playing games, we're connecting and they feel their humanity and they don't all of a sudden feel like I'm not good enough for people judging me. Mm, yeah. Do you ever name that for them? Do you ever say like a sixth grade is really a time where you're trying to be too cool for everything. And this is a place where you don't have to be that cool. Like, do you ever have conversations like that? I'm intrigued about how you, I like the way you put it. I think I'll use that line. What I say is don't be too cool to sing. Yeah. Because if you stop singing, then the people around you feel like, oh, should I not be singing? And then right. they're self-conscious. It's just right. so that connection makes everybody feel safe. Everybody's yes. unified. Everybody's singing. Yes. And they feel the security of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if one person is just like, nope, I'm out, 
then that makes everybody else feel insecure too. Of course, of course. And it makes, you know, it's almost like you have to find the most influential kid with the greatest status. And that's got to be the one that you've got to connect with because then they'll bring the others along. I would imagine in music, that's all the more true. When you think about this idea of perfectionism, do you think that's playing in to some, especially the older kids and why they're a little bit afraid? Or is it more just around kind of issues of identity and gender? And do you see perfectionism in the young kids holding them back? Oh, for sure. And, and, and it increases as they get older. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's a couple of little kids, even in kindergarten, you know, who are just so hard on themselves, so detail oriented. Mm. Sometimes it's a trait, and but there's, it's definitely learned then. Mm-hmm. I think as teachers, we can help with that and celebrate the whole child and not just their test score, mm-hmm. you know, help them see that you are a person and that's what I value. And even say, <laughs> I, I said this just the other day with a group of kids, I said, raise your hand if you're a really good reader. Mm-hmm. Raise your hand if reading is really hard for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Raise your hand if you're really good at math or if you can draw things. And I said, do you think that I like those kids better because they're good at reading mm. and the kids automatically they go oh no no of course not mm-hmm. so if we talk about it they know that's not true but yet yeah. they kind of get that message when we have you know the test scores and the stars and the stickers yeah. and things where they feel like I guess I'm not that great and if yeah. you can just like you said like name it and just say yeah. hey I, I value you as a person and then also giving time in the classroom for things that celebrate the whole child and mm-hmm. not just the academic learning I did things like well, in the classroom, it was called Five Second Share. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to hear about the fun things. that They, they saw a movie or they went on a family trip or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those things that are non-academic that are really a big part of their life. Mm-hmm. And so um, in kindergarten, I let them draw about it on whiteboards and then draw some letters. And then mm-hmm. we go around the circle and they just had a minute. So it was kind of a literacy thing, too. Totally. In music, I'm like, oh, how am I going to do Five Second Share? I mm-hmm. make them sing it. So mm. they can raise their hand and they'll be like, my mom and dad are taking me out to lunch today. That's awesome. So just kind of valuing whatever is going on in their life that's uh-huh. not a school thing and letting them feel that that's valued. You, you yeah. see them as a whole person. That does help a lot. I have a colleague who taught me that uh, I worked at Stanford for seven or eight years and um you know, they have names for everything there that you and I probably do instinctively. But when we have a name, then we can be conscious about it. And so she taught me about this notion of assigning competence. And it's, and she was a math teacher. And um, basically what it is is publicly acknowledging something that the students are doing that has nothing necessarily to do with math. So I, I just want to name everybody how great it is that Jenny is really struggling with this problem with her partner and how much perseverance that shows. Let's give it up for Jenny. You know, like right, we're, we're assigning competence to, to traits or dispositions. Assigning competence. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. I love that. Isn't that great? I mean, it's something you do yeah. anyway, but when you have a name, yeah. then you're like, oh, that's right. I want to assign competence to. And it's just, it's so critical to us, I, I mean, I used to assign competence for things like a kid who can put an outfit together really good <laughs> or a kid who, um, you know, helps somebody <laughs> help somebody up if they fell down or, you know, what kind some any kind of kind of kindness or whatever. But you're right. It's that whole child. It's not just the intellectual academic right. piece. And we did that in kindergarten, you know, at the end of the year, we the great puzzle maker. Yeah. Or, you know, we just this is natural in kindergarten yeah. just to say like, oh, you're 
you're the highest swinger, you know, yeah. good for you. Yeah. Yeah. But if we can look at that as they get older and still value those things. Right. Because yeah. like you said, the, the kindergartner is still in that big body. Yeah. I also think like celebrating their, their humanity. Um, I did like make a difference Monday mm. and thankful Thursday. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of created this beautiful tone in the classroom of celebration and togetherness and service. So make a difference yeah. Monday, we would, you know, go clean the desks in someone's room or do thank you notes for someone and thankful Thursday. I just did something a, a book or a song or an activity mm. that just made us feel grateful for all the mm. great things. Um, and that just brought a lot of joy into the classroom. It reminds kids that they are more than their test scores. Yeah. Oh, I love that idea. And, and when you think about laying that groundwork with students, do you feel like that, that builds their stamina for risk because they feel safe with you? They feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. I'm thinking about this idea of building stamina for vulnerability, right? Is that something you would consider? Well, definitely. It just builds a relationship of trust Mm -hmm. where they feel like they can take a risk because they know that their worth is set Mm -hmm. with you. They're not hustling to get approval. Yes. And I have to work against this a lot in the music field because as a performer, Right it's really easy to get caught up in the idea that you are your performance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so your, your sense of worth when you first start performing and, you know, you get the audition or you get the solo or something, that's a real ego boost. And it's easy to identify with that and feel like, mm. Oh yeah, this is who I am. Mm. And so in order to, you know, weather the storms, <laughs> you have to kind of disconnect from identifying with your performance yeah. as your worth because if you believe that, then you can help the kids believe that. Yeah. You know, that praise and blame are all the same. Uh, it's just someone else's opinion of you. That's so true. I heard this great thing. Um, Glennon Doyle talks about feedback like junk or like mail. That 80% of it is junk and 20% of it is good feedback that you should consider. You know, <laughs> but to really be thinking about like, you know, it's just somebody else's opinion. And sometimes there's nuggets in there that will help you grow. And sometimes it's just their opinion and you can like say thank you and move about your business. Yeah. That is hard to do though with, with performance-based work. I mean, so much more even than like an essay because everything's yeah. about the applause, right? Well, but it's really bigger. It's just our whole society too. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything is the way people see you and you know, what kind of jobs you get, what kind of yeah. reputation you have, you know? So it's, it's really hard to pull out of that. Um, in Tai Chi, they have this idea called the monkey mind. Mm-hmm. And your monkey mind is just your chatter, you know? And, and I would say it's like your survival brain. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is a brain that scans the environment for any sense of anyone judging or criticizing. You know, it, it's doing its job. Mm-hmm. You know, monkey mind isn't a bad thing, mm-hmm. but you have to realize it's not who you really are. It's just, you're, it's doing its job to keep you alive. Yeah. But you've got to disconnect from that and just be like, my worth is set. And then you get that internal drive to improve Mm -hmm. rather than the perfectionism of trying to please everybody outside of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you read the book by Zaretta Hammond, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Mind? It's all brain-based. It takes the work that I do on a practical level and puts the science behind it. And there's a whole chapter on... um, on the brain and the amygdala, which you're talking about, the like the, the yes. survival brain, right? And and how we can create places for students, how really our most fundamental job is to create a place for students where their amygdala can rest 
and they can enter into scary things as a result of feeling safe. Oh, that's that's the whole formula right there. It, it really is. Yeah. The brain opens up. Um, there's a great TED Talk. It's my very favorite one ever um, called The Happiness Advantage. Mm. Sean Aker is a brain researcher. Well, he's a happiness researcher. Okay. Oh, wait. I think I saw him. Do you on, know him? I think I saw him on Oprah. Was he on Oprah once? He's my hero. He does a lot. Okay. But he says your brain on positive is 30% more effective than negative, neutral, or stress. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah. you just get better returns when they feel safe, when yeah. they feel happy. Yeah. But it can't be fake, right? I think that's what some people take this and they'll turn it into like, well, we, you know, toxic positivity or like praising the child for, you know, I don't know, breathing. Like, yeah. that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. That's really important. So I, I'm curious about what role joy plays in your classroom, in your life, and maybe a fun story you have where where joy has led a student to really having an experience maybe they wouldn't have been brave enough to do before. Any Anything you want to offer there just about joy as we move toward closing? Yeah, I am really grateful to be teaching merely because it's given me permission to really focus on joy. Mm. Emile Dalcroze is a music educator from about 100 years ago, and he said the best means of training the intelligence of the child is to play intelligently mm. with them. And you know, you like you just get that joy in the classroom, yeah. and then their brain is just organized. And so just creating joy in the relationship, really, I, I think my most important thing that I focus on is just trying to help the children feel loved. Mm-hmm. You know, and just making sure that I greet them and I smile and I, I just, you know, compliment little things like, oh, you got new shoes mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just helping every kid to feel seen. It's hard when I teach 800 kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I have that heart. I've, I've taught kindergarten enough. Like, I just want everyone to feel like I'm their, you know, their, their loving teacher. Yeah. And yeah. it's been fun after years to have kids come back mm-hmm. and, and just feel like after years and years and years, you know, I didn't think I was that amazing. I'm not, I am not an amazing teacher, but I am a very loving and very joyful teacher. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's what kids remember. And they'll be like, oh, mom, will you send a graduation announcement to Mrs. Brown, my kindergarten oh, teacher, sweet. you know, and I haven't heard from these kids for 16 years, you know. Wow. So I just, I believe that that kind of love and joy in the classroom gets in their hearts and minds. It stays, yeah. it stays forever. Yeah. It doesn't matter like how great your visual aids are or how clever your questions are. Yeah. If they don't have that light in their heart and in their minds, yeah. cause that's what is going to really stick with them. So true. Would you say that that's kind of your piece? Let me, let me kind of go back. My theory is that part of the reason the world is out of whack is that we're not in tune with our authentic gift that we were born and put on the earth to bring. It's like we all have a puzzle piece, right? And and it's life is only going to work if we put our puzzle piece down on the table with everybody else's and let's create something beautiful together. But if you're if you're like nervous about your piece or you're not sure or you're trying to be somebody that you're not, it, it no. things don't work, right? So when you think about your piece at your school, like in a faculty meeting or in, in some sort of something, what's the piece that you bring that uh, to the table when you think about your particular gifts that you feel like, yeah, I'm proud of it. This is, this is what I do. This is who I am. I love that idea. I love what you just said. I, I had a principal who said, I truly believe that none of us can be our best selves as teachers 
without those around us, yes. without each other. Great. And I was like, uh, being an independent learner, I was like, oh, wow, really? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. wow. So I love that idea of the puzzle piece because we do. We learn from each other and we need each other. Mm-hmm. I think my puzzle piece is that I speak for the little children. Mm-hmm. I, speak for the, I speak for the little people. Mm-hmm. And, and that means, you know, uh, for me, the 5 through 12-year-olds, they're all little people. Mm-hmm. And that I, I preserve the holistic child. And I speak out for that. I speak out in meetings about testing too much, mm-hmm. about reducing them down to a test score and mm-hmm. putting scores on a wall of shame. You know, oh, I, I just, yeah. And shaming teachers with that yes. too, like teachers getting data slapped. And yeah. so I, I really just speak to children being able to be children, not just during recess, but they need to play games. Yeah. They need to pretend. They need to have joy. They need to act like children. They need to move their bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and when you do those things, their brain lights up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. God, I wish, I wish there was uh, like a joy, like a uh, chief of joy office at a school. Yeah. You know, I feel like if I, if I ever start my own school, we're gonna have a chief of joy office. I'm naming myself that. Yes. I think that's beautiful. I love. I mean, yeah. every and every school needs that reminder, right? Just like every school needs the reminder, like, oh yeah, they actually do need to be learning and. Oh yeah, while they're learning, they could be learning through play. Like and we put those two yeah. things together and we've got ourselves some magic. Well, as chief of joy, you would also be in charge of making sure that the teachers yes. feel validated and joyful. Yes. Because like you said, if the teachers aren't feeling it, they can't help the kids create no. it. So I think it's really important and I see this as part of my job mm-hmm. in the school to help the teachers feel uplifted mm-hmm. because there's not many people uplifting them to help them you know, feel seen and validated for all the hard work mm-hmm. they do and to create an environment that's non-competitive, mm-hmm. that's supportive. And mm-hmm. I can, I can praise you as a teacher mm-hmm. and that's not going to make me feel threatened. And we're going to lift each other up right. because that helps you have the kids. It's the, I, I believe that so wholeheartedly that, that our kids are a mirror to us and we're a mirror to them. And if we bring in like downtrodden, overwhelmed, burdened, that's what they're going to pick up, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. part of what our challenge is right now is that our teachers are just beaten down. And, and, and we can't even really have the hard conversations that we need to have about making our practice better because they're just still in survival mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just like we can't teach, teach kids who are in survival mode, we can't have teachers be in survival mode and expect them to teach well. I think that's really, really, really important. So the last two questions we ask all of our guests, and I, I'm very curious about this first one. When you are thinking about a great day of teaching or you want to have a great day of teaching, do you have a go-to song that you play for yourself? Or you probably don't because you have such a wide range. There's so many songs in my head at all at once. But one that one that comes to mind that I do love, it's by Mandisa and it's called Good Morning. It's just uh-huh. it's a really fun song. And then I also actually love the other one from Singing in the Red. Good morning, good morning. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love Both it. Both of those are really fun songs. I love it. I love it. All right, quick tip tape away. This podcast is called Copy Room Conversations because I feel like those are where the best conversations take place when we're all kind of getting ready for the morning and the, there's that buzz you know I miss that buzz so much so um if if there's a bunch of us working in the copy room and you're about to exit what are you going to say to us to have a great day of teaching smile mm. just smile I have a Tai Chi teacher who said smile stands for start my internal love engine oh. which is really corny 
but I love it at I the same time. That. It shifts your energy. Yes, yeah. it does. <laughs> smile. Isn't there brain science behind that? Like that if you smile, then your, your mood can follow sometimes? Oh, absolutely. When people put a pencil in their mouth, it was a fake smile mm-hmm. even. They still, their brain still interpreted things in a more positive way and was more productive on tests. Oh too. my God. Oh my yeah. God. Okay. Yeah. I love it. Just smile. <laughs> well, it's been such a delight having a chance to talk with you. I hope that we have a chance to stay in contact. Yes, I feel like we're soul sisters. We're I agree. talking the same language. I agree. I so, agree. Thank you so much for having uh, me. It's my pleasure. And don't worry about your dog. Mine's sitting right here asleep. I don't know if you can see. <laughs> Usually it's mine that's barking. So no worries there. It was so fun to connect with you. you thank as you well. so much. Take good care. Thank you for sharing your time with us in the copy room. Whether you're on your way to school, on your way home, walking your dog, or doing your household chores, I wish you a day of letting down and letting go. Remembering your birthright is to operate from a place of joy, even if your heart's broken. Perhaps especially when your heart's broken. Thank you to Dirt Path Publishing for producing this podcast, and to you for listening. <laughs>